Hi, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, with the goal of engaging the city and impacting the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's message is from our family ministries pastor, Jim Loki. If you want to know more about Calvary Baptist Church and its ministries, head over to www.cbcnyc.org. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son. Your Son changed everything, not only in all of history, um, especially in all of history, but also in the lives of those of us who have received him as Lord and Savior. He's the hope of all the earth, and today we gather together to lift him up. Father, I pray now that as we read your word, Lord, speak to us. Give us open hearts. Help us to hear what you want us to hear today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Uh, We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. It says this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. So today we're continuing our journey through the Advent season, and in our time together today we're looking at John the Baptist and his uh, message, his call to repent. Now, as a middle school boy, few people from the Bible just captivated me more than John the Baptist. I mean, this guy wore clothes made out of camel's hair, and he rocked that with a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. I mean, I love honey. And middle school me had versions of just arm, you know, armfuls, fistfuls of locusts, and he's just dipping them in honey. And it's just amazing. 
you know, and he's dressed like that. It, a more maybe appropriate name for him would be John the Baptizer because he was one who baptized. He, you know, he wasn't like Baptist, like, you know, John the Methodist or John the Episcopalian. Like, it wasn't like that. He was one who would baptize. It's John the Baptist. So Jesus called him. Now, in eighth grade, my friend David, and David Vino and I, we thought, mm, whatever. His name needs to be John the Baddest, okay? Because this guy... You, he's a tough dude. You did not want to mess with him. He's rugged. He's yelling at people, telling them they need to stop it. He's wearing these wild man clothes. He's making religious people mad. I mean, oh, it's fantastic. You know, what middle schooler would not look up to John the Baptist? Now, I'm going to behave today and refer to him as John the Baptist. I'm going to do my best not to, to go back. But now, as I got older and understood who John was and what God did through him, I learned that as cool as I thought he was, he was not the star of the show. In fact, John himself rejected that notion. He made it clear through his words and through his actions that he came to point others to the coming Messiah and to turn from your sin and turn to God because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I've entitled this sermon today, A Message We All Need to Hear. Now, by that, I do not mean Jim Loki's message. Believe me, I don't mean that, but John's message. This message uh, to repent, the message he shared that day in the Jordan River Valley. It's a message for all of us. Now, John, he was fulfilling what was spoken in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. We see that Matthew mentions this explicitly in verse 3 here in his passage. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He was also fulfilling what was spoken by the prophet Malachi in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me, before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. John was that voice. John was that messenger. And he came to, to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, at this point, Jesus the Messiah had already been born. In fact, in the verses immediately following this passage we're looking at today, uh, John baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. However, this moment uh, was not the first interaction between John and Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, we see where the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and shares with her that God has chosen her to give birth to the Messiah. And after hearing this incredible news, Mary leaves Nazareth to go to the hill country to Judah, to the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And Luke chapter 1 verse 41 says that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, John the Baptist, leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth then speaks a blessing over Mary, and after that, Mary breaks into this song of praise to God for what he's doing. So the birth of John the Baptist uh, was also unique and marked by a powerful sense of the presence and the movement of God. We don't have time today to look into all that background, but I encourage you to read Luke chapter 1 in its entirety to savor all of this. It's so good. So all of that to say that John the Baptist was called by God. He was 
a prophet, a New Testament prophet. Jesus called him a prophet, actually. He called him more than a prophet. We'll see here in Matthew 11, verses 7 through 11, Jesus said this, As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So we see that John the Baptist, he was empowered by the Spirit of God, and the hand of the Lord was upon him. And so we see him preaching in the wilderness in Judea, here in verse 1 of chapter 3. And we see that he not only had a message to give, but his lifestyle aligned with that message. And today, I want us to look at both of those, his lifestyle and his message, as we study this passage. Let's look at his lifestyle first. So John appears in the desert wearing garments made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. So I was giving that some thought, and I wasn't quite sure what that meant. So I did a few Google image searches to let my mind soak on what this may look like. So here's, here's a photo of a camel hair jacket. Uh, this is from Prada, and it really would only cost you around $4,600. Uh, very reasonable, right? Yeah. You notice I marked large, so, you know, just in case you want to, you know, just include that gift receipt. No, I'm just kidding. Um, not my style. And I don't think that's John the Baptist's style either. He would not have worn that. That's way too fancy. Then there's this little guy here, you know. He's cute, but I don't, I don't think that's quite it either. I think it would be something more like this. Maybe not exactly. I mean, this guy looks like an actor in a low-budget Bible movie. But you get the idea, right? It's the best I could, I could come up with. <clears throat> Camel's hair was often woven into a thick, rough, dark cloth, which was used as an outer garment or a cloak or a, a coat, uh, especially for people living in the desert. The garment was typically the clothing of poorer people, um, especially those... Uh, you know, especially when you contrast it with royalty living in uh, fine houses and palaces. At, at this time, this type of clothing would also be worn by a priest who would do that to show a rejection of luxury and also as a symbol of distress. John's garment of camel hair would visualize the very repentance to which he called the people. It was intentional. And his food was locusts and wild honey, which was not unusual for people living in the desert. The locust was a, uh, most likely a migratory grasshopper, and this was permissible food for the people of Israel to eat. A cross-reference to see that is Leviticus 11, 20 to 33. There were, <clears throat> and still are today, this is an important food source in many areas of the world, uh, especially when there's such a ready source of protein and they're abundant, they're everywhere, even in desolate areas. And often they're collected and then dried or ground into flour. John's diet of locusts and wild honey from, 
would have supplied him with a crude but fairly balanced diet. And again, it's intentional. He's communicating rejection of luxury and materialism. Matthew describes John clothe, John's clothing as much like that of the prophet Elijah. We see this in 2 Kings 1, 7 through 8, where he said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and who told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he said, It's Elijah the Tishbite. So his steady diet of locusts and wild honey resembled the diet of people who lived in the desert at that time. Both his clothing and his food pointed to his rejection of the luxuries of the life of this world. His diet and clothing combined with his message cast a powerful demand to repent in light of the nearness of the kingdom of heaven. He embodies this in his lifestyle and in the message of repentance that he preaches. It's a call to let go of the trappings of this world, the sins of this world, and to turn wholeheartedly to the Lord. Now I want us to look at John's message. So at the beginning of our passage today in verse 1, the phrase, in those days, it refers to the days of Christ's life on earth. Somewhere around 30 years passes between Matthew 2, verse 23, and Matthew 3, verse 1. And John comes on the scene in Matthew 3 and introduces an entirely new uh, moment, a new day in redemptive history. He called people to repent, to start their lives over. To repent means to change your mind, to have a new way of thinking. But it means even a bit more than that. When we repent, the changing of our mind is shown in our actions. It's shown how we live. We turn away from our sin, and we turn and move towards God. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew chapter 11 that Malachi was, uh, that he there was not prophesying a literal reappearance of Elijah, but rather the coming of a prophet just like Elijah, who would prepare the way of the Lord. So here John stands. He's calling people to repent, and he's baptizing them as they confess their sins. The fulfillment of these prophecies could hardly have been left out. And by introducing John, and by introducing them, John uh, in, brings in this fulfillment of this prophecy. And Matthew rightly ties together at the end with the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. There had not been a prophet in Israel for 400 years, since the time of Malachi. But after 400 silent years, the flow of God's revelation starts again as Matthew picks up precisely where Malachi left off. John came preaching repentance of sin. I love this quote by Harry Ironside. He wrote that such a ministry is needed greatly today when men have lost, in large measure, the sense of the sinfulness of sin, adding, it's useless to preach the gospel of the grace of God to men who have no realization of their need of that grace. It's only good news when there's bad news, right? 
We need more of that today. And so John, he's preaching here, and he's calling for the beginning of the full restoration and blessing of God's people. And again, Matthew quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, where Isaiah told a prophet who would come crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Just as the roads were often repaired in the ancient world uh, to prepare for royalty to come through and travel on them, so John calls uh, on those who hear him to rebuild highways of holiness to the Lord that only comes through repenting and through the grace of God. John's first words in verse 2 speak to this preparation uh, ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Clearly, this was no ordinary king who was coming. Now, it's interesting. The picture of baptism that we see here in Matthew 3 is, is quite astonishing. Baptism wasn't common in Old Testament history leading up to the time of John the Baptist. In fact... Uh, the only people really who were baptized were, were Gentiles, non-Jewish people who had decided to become followers of Yahweh, of the God of Israel. And baptism was a way, baptism was a way of saying, I'm an outsider. I'm renouncing my former ways, and I'm embracing faith in the one true God, the God of Israel. So it's so interesting and amazing that people from Jerusalem and Judea, Jewish people, came to be baptized. They were admitting that their Jewishness did not guarantee them a right standing before God. They realized that they needed to personally confess their sins and profess faith in God. And here for the first time in scripture, we begin to see the significance of baptism. Now, to repent of sin and to be baptized is to renounce dependence upon yourself and to acknowledge that there is nothing in you that can save you before God, including your family heritage. Ethnicity was extremely important to Jews, and many of whom believed that simply by being an Israelite, that meant that they were right before God. And this this kind of belief explains why John so sternly confronts the Pharisees and Sadducees in verses 7 through 10. These two groups of Jewish leaders were on different pages in many ways, but they were on the same page in this way, that they both believed that their Jewish heritage made them right before God. For us today, it's I think of it this way. It's dangerous for us to believe that because you were born into a Christian family and maybe even baptized into a Christian family, that your status before God is secure. This is no minor issue. To be born into a Christian home is a tremendous privilege. I had that privilege, and I thank God for that. It's, it's a privilege to have Christian parents who walk with God and who try to guide their children into the kind of life that God has intended for us. Christian parents are privileged to have the guidance of Scripture and of the Holy Spirit to help them raise their children in the right way. But Christian parents and children both need to remember that while this is a blessing, each person is still individually accountable before God. Christian parents must be intentional to lead their children 
not only the church activities, which is important, but more importantly, to understand what it means to present their hearts and their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. And children of Christian families, don't bank your faith on the faith of your parents or your grandparents. Each of us will stand alone before God to render accountability with what he has done and what we have done with our lives. And so in verses 7 through 10, two groups of Jewish leaders appear on the scene. Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees are there to see what is happening. Today, we would probably consider these two groups a cross between political and religious factions. The Sadducees were political liberals and religious conservatives that had made peace with the Roman government. They believed only in the doctrine that came from the five books of Moses. Therefore, they rejected things like angels um, and even the resurrection of the dead. But Pharisees, they were larger and more popular group, teachers of the law, and they tended uh, toward political conservatism and religious liberalism. They developed an oral law as a fence around the Torah, which included interpretations. This is how you need to apply this. Very strict, very rigid, <clears throat> with specific applications of the written scripture to help people obey them more properly. Now here, John perceives some kind of hypocrisy that causes him to just unleash a verbal attack against these particular Pharisees and Sadducees that came. He follows his accusation in verse 7 with a command in verse 8. You'll see it on the screen. The command is to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He then anticipates their objection in verse 9 and responds with a stern warning in verse 10. And their hypocrisy is most likely involved in their pretending to support or um, agree with his ministry. He, the word brood, he calls them, you brood of vipers. That word brood is more literally offspring of vipers. And, and here, John, he's referring to their shrewdness and the danger that they pose to others. This could also be an indirect allusion to the evil caused by the original serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And the last line of verse 7 just oozes with sarcasm. John knows full well that these Jewish leaders are not fleeing from the coming wrath. Now, we know Jesus is the true son of Abraham. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 mention that in, in the genealogy there. And apart from the Lord Jesus, there is no salvation. The reference to these stones that John makes uh, had to be inspired by the rocky ground that covers Israel. And as at the end of verse 7, verse 10 again predicts imminent judgment for those who reject John's call to repentance. The fire, as verse 12 makes clear, stands for eternal punishment. And we shouldn't think of any lesser judgment than this. Too often in the history of the church, people have trusted in living in a Christian nation, being born into a Christian family, being a member of a church, praying a prayer, uh, doing ministry in Jesus' name, and yet have never truly repented of sin 
and receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior. Without a life of growing faith, trusting in these other things is futile and it will not save you. So, what's our response? First, we, we're called to repent. Now, I don't think God calls us to imitate John exactly. You know, we don't have to wear camel hair and, and eat locusts. That's, that's not what's intended. There was a generation who did that in the early church, as well as some Franciscan monks, and there are others that do something very similar today. John had a unique role. He was to fulfill prophecy uh, that Isaiah had given to be a voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Messiah. But with that said, he does offer an example of a repentant life by shunning materialism, consumerism, and selfishness. But enough about John. It's his message that provides us the reasons we need to repent. And the first one is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. But also, not only is the kingdom of heaven at hand, the king is at hand. Our king has arrived. Messiah is here. And for us today, there's actually a third reason. That king died on the cross for the sins of the world, rose from the grave on the third day, is alive and well, reigning over all creation, and he's coming again. His return is just as certain as his birth. Advent's about anticipating the celebration of his birth, while at the same time anticipating the day he comes again, at the end of all days, to make wrong things right, to bring justice, judgment, and to restore all things. He was born as a baby and laid in a manger, but he did not stay a baby. He grew up and became a man. He walked this earth to seek and save the lost. And ultimately, he died on the cross for payment for the sins of the world. At some point, he's coming again. And when he returns, he'll judge wickedness on earth, and he'll make all things right. He's coming for his people, believers, those who have put their faith in Jesus. This day will be a fearful mournful day for those who have not received Jesus Christ as Lord, but a day of peace for those who have placed their faith in him. This baby, this baby and his birth we celebrate in a few weeks changed everything. His birth was incredibly significant, but there's so much more to his story and to our story. Just as those who heard the message John proclaimed and chose to repent to get right with the Lord uh, we need to do the same thing. To repent means to turn from our sinful ways and turn to the Lord. We all need to repent. Everyone, you, me, we're all sinners. Sin isn't merely an action or two. It's, it's like a disease that infects us. And there's no cure other than the blood and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need a Savior. And the only remedy is the cross of Christ. And for some of us, maybe there's some sins in our lives that we've grown too comfortable with. It's like we've gotten used to it. 
we say or think things like, oh, that's, that's just how I am. And it's like we're not even convicted by it. And we don't repent of it. Jesus wants you and me to let go of that sin. Give it to Jesus. We need to repent and walk in the new life that Christ has given us. For others of us here, some of us, maybe that means surrendering yourself and giving your life to Jesus Christ for the first time. Maybe as I've been speaking today, you've sensed God speaking to your heart, nudging you, drawing you closer to himself. That's God speaking to you. Today, I encourage you to stop running from God and to run toward him. Give yourself fully to him today. Ask Christ to forgive you of all your sins. Turn from them and then begin to follow him and walk with him. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess your mouth, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God will save you. He will make you new through Christ. And not only that, but you become part of his kingdom and his church to join him in what he's doing today. Salvation, forgiveness of sin, and new life is about living in heaven forever, but it's also so much more than that. Eternal life begins the moment you receive Christ. It begins with repentance. I can think of no greater way to honor Jesus in this Advent season than to give your life to Christ and surrender to him. For those of us who've already surrendered to Christ, those of us who are saved, there is still a need for us to repent. We need to repent daily, <laughs> minute by minute. Are there, just a moment of reflection, are there any sinful patterns that have formed in your life that should not be present, but somehow they've become normal? We need to flee sin. We need to repent of sin and turn to Christ and his grace. Second, we're to call others to repent. We're to call others to repent. Now, similar as to how John the Baptist lived and called others to repent, we need to have a similar response. Now, as I say this, I know some of you are like, oh boy, getting uncomfortable. You're thinking about uh, the guy. So my son Caleb and I, we, um, it was a season or two ago, we uh, took the seven train out to City Field um, to watch our um, Texas Ranger, uh, world champion, World Series champion, Texas Rangers, uh, play the New York Mets. And as we were coming off the seven train and walking down the platform, there was this guy. You've seen guys like this. He had the sign with the red paint, had one word on it, repent. And he had this uh, megaphone. He was just, he wasn't really preaching. He was like yelling at people like, you need to repent. And he yelled at Caleb and me and like, he's right. You know, I do. But it's like, I don't know, it's like no one was really listening. And I'm not, I'm not here to say, like, don't do that. Like, if that's your thing, <clears throat> that's totally cool. I'm just here to say there are other ways to do that. I think <clears throat> street preaching, you know, like, that's an option. But I think a better step for most of us is to speak with people already in our lives, coworkers, neighbors, friends, and family members. So how can... You know, how can we do that? What are some ways we can do that? Well, I love what Greg Steer uh, came up with. He's a youth ministry leader from an organization called Dare to Share. He 
has uh, five simple steps of sharing your faith, and it's taken from the story of Philip and the Ethiopian uh, from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. I I think this is really good. I want you to check this out. First is obey the prompt. Uh, In Acts 8, verse 30, it says, The Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stand near it. So I would say pray and make yourself available to be used by God. When the Spirit prompts you to share the gospel, obey. Just be ready. Pray. Ask God to put you in that spot. Two, ask the question. Philip ran up to the chariot, saw the eunuch who was reading the Bible, and said, Do you understand what you're reading? Maybe the question you begin with is, How are you today? And then after talking for a little bit, just shifting the conversation a little. Do you go to church anywhere? Do you have any kind of a spiritual background? One thing I do is when people share something um, that's tough in their life, maybe sickness or pain they're feeling or a loss, I'll say something like, um, well, I'm a person who prays. You know, would it be okay if I pray? And then I'll ask them, like, do you ever pray? Have, have you ever prayed? The goal is to spark a spiritual conversation which leads us to the next point. Three, accept the invite. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him in verse 31. When you begin to turn any conversation toward God, you're either going to be invited into the chariot, so to speak, or not invited. And that's okay. Don't force somebody to have a gospel conversation. Make sure they, you have their permission. And I find most of the time people or at least willing to talk about it a little bit if you're kind and have shown a genuine interest in them. I've had a friend that I got to share the gospel with recently. Um, man, it's probably been seven or eight times where I've gotten to step three, and I was not invited. I'll, I'll put it that way. But a couple weeks ago, I was, and I ended up in his basement sharing the gospel. So don't give up just because one time you don't get invited. Four, share the gospel. Then Philip began with that very message of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Focus on the cross and the empty tomb and faith alone in Jesus about salvation. Don't get sidetracked by politics or uh, justice issues. Just keep it about Jesus and the gospel. And then five, Start the discipleship. Then Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized them. If this person is open and they come to faith, you lead them to Christ. That's beautiful. Um, But don't just lead them to Jesus and then leave them. Do your best to get them plugged into a church. Maybe it's here at Calvary. Maybe there's another church that would be better for them. That's fine. Just get them plugged into a local church family where they can begin that process of discipleship. They can get baptized and then stay connected with them to help them become rooted in their new faith and connected to that local church body. Now, as we move through this season of Advent and approach the celebration uh, of Christmas Day, we need to repent. All of us, you, me. Let's turn from our sin and turn toward Jesus. And let's call others to repent. We need to look forward to celebrating his first coming 
as we celebrate Christmas, and we long for the day when he comes a second time to make all things right. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son. Thank you for this example we have of John the Baptist, a man who his lifestyle matched with his message. I pray for each one of us here. You would help us to do the same, that we would be repentant in how we live, that we would have a soft heart toward you. It ought to be clear to the world around us that we're saved, and I pray that that would be true. And also give us the courage, give us the opportunities, and help us to step into those moments to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.